I am truthfully, I'm not going to answer your question. I am stuck on the fact that it sounds like you're saying Real Housewives is like a series. Like it's like every year, like more. Oh, no. <laughs> what, are you that because... disconnected? What in the world are you referring to? You're I talking definitely... about Real Housewives franchise? You know, I... multiple cities, right? So, yes, but that's because I thought it was like a real world thing. Like that just they do one year oh. with these people and then they get famous if they're like on the but it doesn't it's amazing no, I mean it's a, occasionally you meet someone who you think oh <laughs> do they live under a rock like <laughs> I was trying to welcome to attached a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, Sesson will bring us a conversation about the real housewives of New Jersey and relationships with in-laws. Ooh, thrilling. My in-laws just formally moved in next door to me, so I'm really excited about this. Then we're going to jump into our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new academic article, Your Suffering is My Stressor, Pro-Inflammatory Gene Expression Rises with Spousal Distress in Middle Age and Older Couples. And then in good or bad advice, I'm going to bring you guys, I know you're excited. It's been a long time. I'm going to bring you some TikToks to discuss. Woo -woo. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, to send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all at Attached Podcast, or just go straight to the source at attachedpodcast.com. For bonus content and to support this little pod of ours, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached, and consider becoming a patron. Also, whenever you listen to our podcast, uh, and wherever you listen to it, whenever, whenever, please rate and review it and consider subscribing as well, because why not, you know? Well, we have a really great episode lined up. I'm really excited about it. But before we get to all of that, tell me stories. What are you guys up to? What's, how are things? So great. Uh, I've been taking your advice that you shared about planning a family vacation. And that's what we've been working on lately. So I think I used to be more of a planner okay. and really like to make sure that I have everything sort of set up and all these things that I want to do. And uh, now I like to sort of leave that energy to my husband. And uh, <laughs> I am collaborating in the process Ooh. and trying to balance like seeing all the things, sure, which sure. is on his list, um, with knowing what my family can survive, which is basically all my list consists of. <sighs> yeah, so we are looking ahead to summer because we're extremely close now and excited. That's amazing. That sounds like an interesting balance to try and achieve. What do you think it the likelihood is. of achieving that is going to be for you and yours? Well, so it's a really good point. Um, we last year needed a lot of conversation ahead of our vacation to like, mm, let's just meet somewhere in the middle. Um, this year, we probably do need a lot of conversation, but it's not happening as much. 
And so um, it might just happen on the fly. We might just need to scale back once we're there. And, you know, um, which is okay with me too. I am uh, flexible. Look at you. Thanks to advice discussed in our last episode. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it's entirely up to that. Well, amazing. I hope you have a wonderful summer vacay and get both relaxation and uh, sights in uh, and whatever balance is good for you. Sussan, what's up with you? Um, I am revisiting the uh, idea of putting my son into more competitive sports again. Um, We completely backed down off that idea last year because we felt like it was not his thing. Um, And he gave us a lot of feedback about it, as you can imagine, various ways. Um, So we backed off because we were like, we don't want the drama. We don't want to push him and stress him out. Sure. But then recently we've watched his effort when he does participate in anything sports and it's like zero effort. We're like, oh no, like we went the other way. We, you know, and I'm like, this is not what we're also aiming for. You know, we do want a healthy level of effort to be put into anything, especially team related where people count on you and like, you know, it's important to show up. We don't need him to be the best. Definitely don't need him to, you know, have like a, a winner mentality. Just try, put your best foot forward. And so, yeah, I'm really nervous, but I've been like spending a lot of hours this week trying to figure out like what level of engagement, you yeah, know. Sure. What are you thinking? Well, he's done like um, competitive, like baseball league kind of things, sure. and like Taekwondo and um, like. But then we backed off. We started doing like choir and, uh, you know, little kids Broadway classes, like things that are more cool. his interests as yeah. um, that are not so competitive. But we went to soccer this week and it was like, <laughs> I remember Sarah mentioning something about um, going to your child's uh, softball, I think, activity and some of the ways that impacted yeah, I just remember going and being like, I don't want to be here. Like, I'm so mad that he's not trying. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wanted to go onto the field and just like, I'm not here Ooh. for you to sit there and do nothing. <laughs> literally just- You're embarrassing me. <laughs> it was beyond that. It was just more like, get off the field if you're literally going to get in the way of these children playing. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. And it's amazing because we've been doing it for three years and it's like, I don't know what's happened. So I'm like, we are definitely- you know, having conversations with him and trying to figure out what that balance looks like. So yeah, it's hard. Um, my middle is playing soccer right now, and he wanted to play, but he's definitely showing sides. He says he likes practice, but he doesn't like the games. I was like, okay, fair enough. So uh, we'll finish out this season and see if he wants to do it. But then he'll be like, oh, I can't wait for soccer tonight. And I'm like, oh, but you just said it's just interesting. But they're so young. They well, mine do at least keep oscillating between what they do and don't like um so it's a we'll see what they all develop into what they end up liking to do i don't it's don't know yeah it's interesting um this semester has fully kicked my tail like uh this semester i've had strep twice two rounds of a stomach bug 
thank the Lord it is almost over. We're in like final season right now and grades are being posted. Uh, I uh, am so thrilled <laughs> for summer to be here. Not because of vacations or anything like that. I'm just ready to not have to show up uh, for work when I'm sick. Um, so that'll be lovely. So right now I'm like purely in survival mode, trying to make it through this last uh, week or so. And um, then I will be able to experience joy again. I'm not really sure if I remember what that's like. I'm just kidding. Only a little bit. Um, every bit of a joke. 50% of a joke is the truth. <laughs> I haven't heard the number, the stat on that. 50%. No, me either. That's a lot. That's a big one. Huh? Oh. to your jokes more yeah, <laughs> <laughs> throwing around a stat like that one <laughs> i know yeah through humor some of us survive but anyway we'll get through it it'll be lovely a wonderful summer ahead of like relaxation and like swimming and outdoor time and movies and stuff like that it'll be good rejuvenate the battery and then next semester it'll be fantastic again right Right. right, 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 right. Okay, that's how you stay employed. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Seth said, housewives, they're real. What you got for us? Yes, they are, sort of. We'll see. Um, <laughs> so those of you who follow the Real Housewives series on Bravo um, are familiar with some of the cast, some of the areas. Uh, New Jersey has been on for a really long time, and um, if you followed that series essentially from the beginning there has been um like this ever eventful relationship between two of the cast members who are sister-in-laws like um Teresa and Melissa and through the years they've had a lot of ups and downs um, more downs it seems like than ups but you know they have really struggled to find peace in their relationship on and off the show it seems like I don't know of course a lot of the history and of course won't speak to stuff that I don't see on camera but I will say that watching that relationship um, dissolve has really made me think about and seeing how long sort of the challenges have existed um, has really you know made me think about like the impact of in-law relationships um, on one's marriage or partnership right and the mm. um short-term and of course long-term implications of that so i was like oh i'm really interested in being you know a, a couple and family researcher i don't really come across a lot of research that talks about the in-law relationship um that's true perhaps you two are more familiar but i don't and so i sort of did a little digging to like try to see what some of the research says about it. a lot of the research that i found the scarce research that exists um, are either focused on really small samples, um, looking at particular ethnic groups, um, but not a lot of like substantive data around that. And it's interesting because it's such, I think anecdotally when I look at it, I see just how much it can impact sort of even the day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. of families, um, particularly those couples 
um, spouses that have in-laws really nearby or living with them, which is really common in many cultures um, and expected. Um, but you know, the power of the in-law relationship is particularly strong in some cultures where there's expectations that family really is involved in a lot of the decisions that happen in the family appropriation. So I was thinking, gosh, when these relationships are stressful or difficult, um, early on and continue to be that way, just how much over time that impact can show up in relationships. And it can even impact whether or not somebody ends up dating someone, right? A lot of the feedback you get about the relationship you're in comes from your family. Um, But then to see a couple decide to be together, make that commitment, and then to see those relationships continue to have an impact, I thought was something we could maybe highlight today um, briefly. so I don't know if you both have any thoughts about what you could come across, your understanding of that, those relationships. Woods. I am truthfully, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm stuck on the fact that it sounds like you're saying Real Housewives is like a series. Like it's like every year, like more. Oh, no. <laughs> Woods, are you that because... disconnected? In the world are you referring to? You're I talking about the Real Housewives franchise? You know, like multiple cities, right? So yes, but that's because I thought it was like a real world thing. Like that just they do one year oh. with these people and then they get famous if they're like on the but it doesn't it's amazing. No, I mean it's a, occasionally you meet someone who you think, oh, do they live under a rock? Like <laughs> I was trying to understand. It's very rare. And especially like how frequently I talk to you. Like it's very rare that you shock me. I would say I'm speechless, but obviously I'm not. This is amazing, Sarah. I'm sorry. We should study you this level. This is fascinating. Like I don't watch them, but I know. I thought like that they were still in the news sometimes because they got famous off like their season. Sure. I didn't, I did not know. It is, it's franchise. So there are like multiple shows. There's Beverly Hills, which is the original. New York. Orange County was the original. New York was the original. OC. I'm terribly sorry. There's an Atlanta one. There's been a DC one. Don't they have like reunion episodes though? Why are they reuniting if they're together all the time? So they have a season, right? Yeah. So New Jersey will have a season. And sure. at the end of that season, they'll have a reunion yeah. episode because, you know, they filmed it like six months ago, maybe eight they'll months ago. They'll talk about their season. They'll talk about And then about- they'll come oh, back and talk oh, about oh, the season. After it's aired. <laughs> after it's aired. Like Top Chef, right? Oh, sorry. Oh, the look on your face. You're talking to a reality oh, sorry. TV show novice here. So, but so but that's next level because like everybody knows how, like even if you don't know reality TV, I mean, you know Housewives, right? Like that's-, right, that's This is why I'm so shocked. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, I could probably speak to the in-law literature, however. Yes, yes. that is why you're here. That is why you're here. Oh my gosh, guys. I probably should have just kept it inside, but the no. more you were talking, the more I was like, oh, I think she means she's followed these people over time. How can that be? A decade. Yeah, they've been on TV like- Oh my God. Stop. Like multiple seasons. Have been on- I'm embarrassed for- by myself. Oh. I- Ooh. No, no, don't be. Yeah, don't be. I think like if I was above it all, I'd be like, yeah. I was above it all. No, that's a good frame. 
I'm <laughs> so above it. <laughs> I couldn't even say it. Cool. You're not PR, but she is. That's a, that's I a... mean, I don't think there's a lot of science about like sibling relationships. Mm-hmm, um, it's not. I'm just going to circle back to that question in yeah, yeah. particular. But I do agree that that's really an interesting sort of gap in the research about what we know about how relationships work, because for so many people, especially adults that have come in generations before us, they on average had, you know, fewer only children. And so you are tending to grow up with not only your own siblings, but if you partner, then you are growing up with your partner's siblings as well. And Mm -hmm. those can be pretty large and looming relationships in your life. And you're right. I don't know that there's a lot of research on that. Um, And I think that's fascinating. I would agree specifically on like sibling in-laws, brothers, sister-in-laws type of situation. There are uh, studies on like mother and father-in-law and how those relationships and what they look like, especially when you start dipping into like the caregiver literature and caretaking and what that looks like. But in terms of that sibling relationship and the Mm -hmm. in-law level of that sibling relationship, I 100% agree with you. But it sounds Mm -hmm. like Sessin maybe found some stuff. Yeah, for someone to explore. I think especially because if you have really close living relationships and then, you know, you find a partner, you court, you decide to marry and to see that sibling relationship shift and change and the impact Mm -hmm. that change sometimes can have in terms of like the level of reactivity to that, that can play out in the marriage. There's no real clear path for how to navigate that. I think a lot of people just try to figure it out as they go, of course, and find that it's harder than it looks, right? To see your sibling who you're best friends with or really close with, sort of adopt a closer relationship, more intimate relationship with someone else and to see a role in that their lives change and knowing how to navigate that and how to be involved and integrated in that. It doesn't feel like there's a clear path to that um, or formula. So I think Mm -hmm. um, it perhaps also really throws off couples when they're trying to decide like, okay, how do I include this other dimension Mm -hmm. of my relationship into my life? Like, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the person we're going to be with and not everyone else they come with every, yeah, exactly. And Mm. how do we navigate those, what can be really complicated relationships, especially Mm -hmm. as relationships start to change and their reaction to that change and how they sometimes may take it out on a partner or react to them. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about boundary setting and how to do that. And especially when you come from different, um, you know, maybe communities and having maybe different expectations of what those relationships should look like. So there's a whole lot of complexities and nuance and all of that, of course, but I do think that the fact that we don't really study it as much as we should, given the impact it has on relationships is something mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Well, we did this, um, I want to say it was season two, but it might've been three. We talked about research where um, they looked at couples, like partners reports of their own closeness with their families, but also their in-law families. And those were not always concordant. And the issue was when husbands essentially over-perceived, like they thought they were closer to their wife's family than the wife said that they actually were it predicted divorce long term uh so it's um yeah so interesting uh how all of those sort of relationships nested inside each other do really sort of impact 
the relationship with the person that you've selected to be with. It's uh, really interesting. It is. And from what I found consistent with that, from the little literature that I defined, it really did suggest that there is, you know, it is harmful when those relationships are not stable and consistent, that it does have, you know, impact on marital outcomes and satisfaction long term. Um, and so it matters to nurture those relationships and to be really mm -hmm. mindful of those and, um, you know, there's no clear path to how to do that. So I think it would be helpful to see some more work in that area done to help families and couples figure out, like, how do you address these things? I know we talk about it sometimes in couples therapy, um, but also, like, we're not really guided by the research on that, so. It's true. Just theory, systems theory. Yeah. So, yeah, I really, as I watch that relationship and how ugly it is, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's really sad to see how not only the relationship is strained, but the impact it has on everyone in the family, including the children, including the sibling who's stuck in the middle there. It's like, it's a sad sort of state of affairs. Um, and again, it goes beyond the parents, like the uh, mother-in-law, father-in-law, but also the mm -hmm. other, the siblings in those relationships too, and how very much those relationships can impact the relationship between the couple. So be thoughtful about those. <laughs> well, that is my message to the audience. <laughs> Be thoughtful. I love it. In an earlier episode this season, episode 14 that is, we discussed a new research article exploring how couples cue into coping with stress together by potentially hearing changes in their partner's vocal arousal due to stress. In today's academic deep dive, we're going to take that one step further and explore how spouse's emotional distress may affect us at the cellular level. Wowie wow. New research in the Journal of Psychoneuroendocrinology led by Dr. Stephanie Wilson at Southern Methodist University tests how pro-inflammatory gene expression found in blood cells circulate through our bodies may shift when our partner's distress becomes more apparent. Lots of research has actually found that marital quality is linked to inflammation as one way our body responds to people we're attached to. For example, earlier studies found that people who rate their marriage as less supportive and less satisfying and couples who discuss their relationship problems with more criticism and blaming actually have higher levels of inflammation than their happily married peers. Greater inflammatory response to that type of chronic stress can have huge consequences for our health. In fact, researchers have found that unhappily married people are more likely to experience cardiovascular events, diabetes, and even earlier death. These authors point out, though, that as couples are together longer and age, conflict in general tends to decrease, and couples that stay married tend to be happy in general than those who divorce. This makes sense. This is logical. However, the unavoidable stressors of adulthood persist. Do they ever? Such as work stress, family demands, caregiving, grief, and so on. So these researchers set out to test whether witnessing our partner's emotional distress in the face of life's ups and downs evokes changes in our inflammatory biology. When I was reading through this earlier, Sarah, 
I thought of this book that I'm currently reading called Oh yeah, The Soulmate Equation. Have you guys heard of it? No. No. It's a fiction. It's not fact. So this oh. maps on very, very tangentially. But it's very fascinating because it's like they developed this uh, dating app. But rather than just like your profile, you do a profile of what your likes and dislikes are, of course, because there's choice in this. But they also um, take your uh, DNA samples and match you on these aspects of DNA that they did a lot of research on in the book. Again, this is fictional. Um, of like long-term married happily couples, how their DNA matches each other. And so they match people and however much you're matched is linked to um, how much of a soulmate you are with people. Uh And that's what the dating app is. Obviously all fiction, but it definitely reminds me of this at the cellular level that we are connected or can influence each other. Very fascinating. Sarah, bring us back into the actual research world here. Um, Tell us what these human actual researchers in a nonfiction world found. I don't know. I'm pretty impressed, though, that you just held up that book that you're reading for fun and that you also, like, leave it on your desk at work. Like, you are actually working on the actual DNA of relationship. I really, you just leave that around, like, oh, that's people know double helix or in your face. It looks fancy. Like, maybe it's a textbook. <laughs> you don't know. Right, that's right. You don't know. And... It might be real. Also, you don't know. You don't know. Uh, so this study that we're talking about today is um, a new paper. It is um, part of a larger project that these researchers have done. Uh, and this one is really, I think, very interesting and different than other kinds of research that we've talked about where they're inviting couples to come into the lab and typically talking about their relationship. So usually stress between the two of them, conflict that they have, that's part of what they're doing, but it's a little bit different, which I think is really interesting. So they had, um, their sample was 19 middle-aged and older couples who were married or in marriage-like relationships. Um, They'd been married an average of over 30 years. They had to be at least 40 years old. On average, they were like 59. Um, Now, important to note, participants were excluded from this project if they had any serious health conditions. So cancer, autoimmune conditions, diabetes, COPD, liver failure. Also, if they smoked, abused substances, took prescription medications that affect your immune system. So there's lots of exclusions. Essentially, they are healthy older couples. So they brought them into the lab, and these couples did baseline blood samples at the start and rated their mood just at the beginning. And then they had them do what they called a relived emotion task that they adapted to be something that these people did together. So they took turns reliving a distressing personal memory out loud for eight minutes in their partner's presence. They were told to choose something that continues to elicit strong emotion that they experience as an individual, not a couple. Mm. Um, The focus really was on reliving emotions that they had experienced in that moment at that time, rather than sort of reporting just the facts, really focusing on the emotional details. And the listener, the partner, was asked to silently listen, just take in that experience without interrupting. Then they each rated their moods again and switched roles and so the listener became the person sharing that emotion uh, and the other person became the listener after that they rated their moods again and 30 minutes later provided another blood sample okay now this study continues in the way that we would typically sort of think about couples research in labs where they then had each partner talk about 
one or two of their most significant marital disagreements. So they did simulate or invite them to talk about marital conflict for 20 minutes and then rated their mood and a final blood sample five minutes later. So in total, it was like an hour and a half. So many blood draws. So much. Well, yeah, there's three bloods. Which which is okay. I think they call it three bloods. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they just that was they, how many samples they have three bloods uh, <laughs> three bloods this is only coming from someone who Science. Uh, cannot handle it very well but yes oh really yes, yes. oh interesting I I'm mean, sorry are I you think, a fan of it yeah no I think it's incredible I think you oh. know like when they do I mean they usually struggle in my veins so it's oh. not like the most pleasant experience but sure, it is sure, like sure. amazing they just tap right into that source and they just learning so much about you <laughs> Oh my gosh. Sassin, oh, what are your well. thoughts about uh, blood draws? Not a fan. I think that <laughs> I'm so afraid of needles in general. Sure, 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 sure. I'm a lot better over the years, so I can be brave for my but, son. But look at you. Moving on. What? No, no, no. Okay, no, it's, no, it's fine. Whatever you're No, no, it's fine. It's fine. We love you no matter what. So the researchers in this study took all the bloods and then they used video recordings of these interactions and they rated the emotional intensity that was experienced when they were disclosing that, um, as well as the marital disagreement. So they looked at observable signs of somebody being really emotionally upset, crying, facial expressions, vocal cues, and also that relationship distress, like hostility and withdrawal and, um, what I thought was interesting uh, is that half of their samples showed overwhelming emotion is how they described it, recalling that upsetting memory. Oh, yeah. Even though almost all of them had talked about that experience with their partner at least a handful of times. Oh, yeah. So, um, which is not only sort of suggesting that what they invited them to do in the lab worked, right? They were able to produce the emotion that they needed to, oh. but also talking about something many times doesn't mean that all your emotion is gone right like that that's still some I mean obviously but um sort of important for what they found too I think so they looked at that pro-inflammatory gene expression which for those of you who are not familiar that I laugh because I'm one of these people um they looked at this specifically because it has like a really rapid response time meaning that the reaction in our bodies can take place within minutes Um, and really sort of captures changes in immune cell components of inflammation that are circulating through our body um, using RNA transcripts, which is not something that I use, and I wish I was cool enough to do that. What they found was that um, spouses disclosing an upsetting memory where the researchers rated that as having greater emotional intensity, their partners mm. had larger increases in pro-inflammatory gene expression, not just half hour after that was done, but also an hour and a half after oh. that disclosure. It stayed elevated. Mm. And what they also found was that partners, listening partners, who experienced more severe more intense negative emotional responses to listening to their partner. They rated their mood as more sad or irritable or upset after listening um, to their spouse disclose what they had gone through. Also experienced larger increases in that um, pro-inflammatory gene expression an hour and a half later. And that effect was true even after talking about the marital conflict, meaning they accounted for any of 
the emotional intensity that they experienced in talking about the disagreements that they have as a couple, that response they experienced in listening to their partner talk about something that they themselves went through lasted. Um, what I also thought was sort of interesting, they said almost a third of their couples exchanged 30 or more hostile remarks during those marital disagreements, like one or more a minute. I know. I was like, well, I feel like there's another study in there about like these long-term <laughs> married couples who are otherwise reporting they're super satisfied showing up in these conflict conversations being rather hostile. Uh, so I do think, I mean... The researchers themselves speak to this, of course, that there are some limitations about this is mostly a non-Hispanic white sample. They're highly educated. They're highly satisfied. They're healthy couples. But even in the face of being really healthy, what they found was that witnessing our partner in emotional pain elicits Mm. a cellular reaction for us. And even more so, the more upset we get. And that is for these happily married couples. And regardless of how much hostility they experienced in those conflict interactions. So, I mean, what's I think important is that that inflammatory reaction didn't downregulate. It persisted for what I would think would be a long time after that sort of initial upset and those conversations. And that was even though they talked about it many times together. Um, And this is for... I mean, I think it really is uh, a really lovely example of how powerful our relationships are and how much our own experiences can affect the people we're with. Um, that that can, I mean, inflammation can um, convey a lot of risk for our long-term health conditions. Yeah. And so when we're both sort of chronically stressed, it's not just about our relationship being stressful. It's also the stress mm-hmm. that I bring to our relationship that you might not have ever even experienced directly, right? Um, That we have the power to impact each other on such a microcosm of how our body responds to stress. Um, I think ideally also points to, we also have the ability to heal each other if we also focus on healing ourselves and our relationship. Um, Really fascinating research. It's absolutely incredible, and it also points to kind of the importance of the work like that we're doing and others are doing of these couple or dyad based like healthcare interventions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. particularly with chronic conditions or you know uh, cancer or, or you know I've seen diabetes too, because it's not just that individual patient yep. who mm-hmm. um, can impact the. Uh, management and outcome of whatever they've been diagnosed with. It's also clearly from this research, their partner, and I'd be interested how this extends to family members, close family members, can also impact um, your health and well-being. Mm-hmm. We know inflammation mm-hmm. and a lot of those other things are linked to um, uh, poor capacity to manage diabetes, hypertension, a lot of these cardiovascular diseases that you mentioned. Um, But we also see higher inflammation linked to chronic pain in breast cancer patients Mm -hmm. or challenges with pain management, too. So Mm -hmm. I think this research is really fascinating because it informs a lot of or supports or, mm, yeah, informs a lot of kind of family or dyadic based interventions Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. for these chronic conditions. Well, and you're right that, I mean, this was a selection of healthy couples, but they were aging couples. They're going to be experiencing more aging-related stress as they get older, and that's going to include 
at some point chronic health conditions. And if we're only paying attention to the people who are stressed by those chronic health conditions and not paying attention to how witnessing your partner go through that affects their partner, then you're also missing potential areas where you can sort of prevent worse outcomes for the couple, but also for both partners, which when you're aging together, um, that's a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Wow. Of course, I support everything both of you are saying and think with regards to the power of relationships, just how much the study really speaks to, you know, I think a lot of the time when we talk about relationships, we sort of separate that from physical health outcomes. And it's really clear just how much it's related and how when we take care of our relationships, we're really taking care of our bodies. Our, you know, I wish we could really communicate that into the mainstream in a way that um, people are able to really hold to because I think so many mm-hmm. times they don't think about their well-being in the context of their relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we know this from, you know, also uh, research agencies, like they don't really support or mm-hmm. necessarily like really look at relationship factors as important, right? It's always like the secondary, this related, mm-hmm. but still not um, as important as looking at direct clinical or medical outcomes. And so I'm excited about this kind of research because it really reinforces mm-hmm. what I think some of us know mm-hmm. and struggle to really get the mainstream to really understand um, about the importance of really addressing interpersonal dynamics, particularly couple mm-hmm. relationships and just how, and it also still, you know, hearing that it's like it's a little also overwhelming because you think about just how much effort it does take to really figure mm-hmm. out how to actually get couples to really find healthy effective ways of supporting each mm-hmm. other um it, it's but so valuable to do that work just like you're saying right like it's sort of also i mean um it speaks to we have a, such a huge focus i think cult in terms of what you're saying, in terms of like mainstream, sort of what picks up culturally, I don't know why I'm speaking to that. Uh, however, there's a large focus on self-care, right? And sort of taking care of yourself and, and setting boundaries and paying attention to what you need in the moment. And that's incredibly important. And also one of the most powerful ways that we can take care of ourselves is through taking care of our relationships and being present for each other and helping each other to sort of regulate our emotions when we are experiencing these really distressing life experiences and that that stress obviously persists. Um, We can continue to take care of each other and that has a lot of benefit. Absolutely. And I think sometimes the uh, advice about taking care of your relationship sometimes gets translated into taking care of your partner. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's not what that means. Uh, Of course, take care of your partner, but it's the relationship. Think of the relationship as like a third piece of this. Right. There's you, your partner and then the relationship together. That's really um, an important piece. It's not like you give more to your partner. That's not what Mm -hmm. uh, taking care of the relationship means. Mm -hmm. It means both. Mm -hmm or into the relationship and how you communicate, how you show up for each other in a bi-directional way is what we mean by taking care of the relationship. Yeah. I think about like um, individuals who suffer complex trauma or trauma just in general who go untreated, right? And how if they would really understand what the implications are to their partner, like really like this has health implications for somebody you really care about. Yep. It's a different 
um, approach to sometimes getting them to maybe want to do that work because they think mm-hmm. trauma work is just so difficult um, and mm-hmm. scary to consider doing on you know for yourself even if it means healing and improving like they're still going through that process but it's somewhat of an additional incentive like it's not just about your own healing but it's about the health of your partner um that's a different message right that's a different way to approach it it's multiple ways in which it can benefit your life um and the life of others around you so yeah i think that's really important to consider too for me it gives me something to add to my list of things to say to people when they're, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I'm interested in doing this really hard. Well, there's this benefit Mm -hmm. now that you could consider. So I like these kinds of research um, projects because I think it really pushes us to have a more grounded way of really promoting the work. Mm -hmm. So good. Yeah, thank you. Inflammation is scary. So anytime we throw inflammation out there, it's like, oh, (laughs) say more. My bloods. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> he sounded like a vampire then. I did. Sorry about that. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, and friends, families, all of the families. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at Attached Podcast. Or just go straight to our website, attachpodcast.com. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, share it with your loved ones. Also, some fun good news. We have a good or bad advice uh, bonus uh, on our Patreon page for our Patreon subscribers. If you want that sweet bonus content and support this podcast, please become a member at patreon.com slash attached. So today we're going to go back to one of my old favorites, TikTok. So this first one is an interview with Kieran Knightley of Pride and Prejudice fame um, talking about motherhood this is the other thing about making it look easy and trying to say that it's all fine is that it takes your achievement away because actually it's not easy and it's really difficult and i'm speaking from a place of incredible privilege where i can i both have a, an incredibly supportive family and i can afford really good childcare. And it's still, when you can do have those two things, it is still phenomenally difficult. I think where it gives you strength is that you go, but I'm doing it. I'm not doing it perfectly. And there are days when I feel like I can't do it, but I am doing it. That's strength. It's not strength if something's easy. It's strength when it's difficult and you come through it. So a, a couple of different uh, points that she highlighted, but I'm curious from you all's perspective, Good or bad advice? What are our thoughts generally here? Uh, Sesson, what are you thinking? I mean, anytime I think, you know, the idea of really being encouraging of yourself or kind to yourself, compassionate, um, when you're doing, you know, something like parenting, for example, it's, it, it's important to do. I mean, it gives you motivation. It gives you, I mean, it's good for your well-being overall. I think, uh, you know, the research shows when you have doubts about your own ability to parent, um, 
it's harder to do it and you struggle more. So I like the advice. I think it was multifaceted message. So I don't know that I tracked all of it, but I think the overall suggestion or idea was that um, just be encouraging. Yeah, exactly. And she was a little bit talking about, I assume the interviewer said, oh, you make it look easy. You make motherhood look easy. And so she was pushing back and kind of criticizing this idea of the phrase, you make it look easy, kind of takes away the work that you've done. Um, And so I think that was a little bit of what she was pushing back as well. But I agree with you, like recognizing the work that you've done and kind of... um, uh, you know, to be positive, I think is really important. Woods, what are your thoughts? I firmly agree with what she's describing. It's hard to imagine that anyone is necessarily communicating that like, oh, this is really easy. Parenting is like super chill. Uh, and also we are absolutely inundated with all kinds of messages about um, sort of ideal, lovely, easy looking sort of parenting family yeah. life on like, especially social media, yes. um, that is uh, so disconnected yeah. from reality. All of those mommy um, influencers on TikTok yeah. and Instagram. Oof. Oh man. Occasionally I'll come across one by accident. It's like jolting. It's not only not reality, but I firmly agree with her that it sort of, um, undermines how valuable it is that you persist and that resilience piece is sort of what she's speaking to is that like this is really hard work and I am essentially showing that I'm capable of doing hard things I'm persisting in something that does not just sort of come naturally and isn't no effort and doesn't take no help it is challenging and that's part of what is so special about what I am accomplishing is that it's not perfect and it's not easy and um and that makes a lot of sense um, anyways, I appreciate that message. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I also really appreciated. She recognized two of her privileges, right? One, she recognized her financial privilege, being able to afford really good childcare, and the other one she recognized. I don't think I hear a lot. She recognized the privilege of having a very supportive family, which mm-hmm. I don't think we hear, particularly in the media, often how unbelievably valuable it is to have supportive family or a chosen family to help you through this parenting journey because it is so challenging and you do need help and of course how privileged uh, it is to ha- be able to afford childcare, especially for young children not uh, non-school aged children um and she said even though i have those privileges it's still incredibly hard so what sometimes you say, Sarah, like both things can be true. Yes, I'm very fortunate to have these resources at my hands, a supportive family and the capacity to pay for good childcare, but it's also really challenging, right? They're both Mm -hmm. true. And I appreciated Mm -hmm. her recognizing those two types of privileges she had and also saying, but that doesn't diminish the challenges that I'm facing. All right. So next up, this one is actually kind of feeding off of what these next two, I think Sesson talked about maybe last week or the week uh, before, last episode or the episode before about workplace um, friends with Kelly Rippa. So this is Kelly Rippa talking about workplace friends, but not really. It's TikTok doing TikTok and having two different people stitching it and telling their opinion 
about what Kelly was saying. Are you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Work friends are crucial for your health. It's called trauma bonding. We're bonded by trauma. You know? Thoughts. He did not like what Kelly Ripa said, just for the record. Or is he sort of maybe more so commenting on his own workplace experience? I'm much more worried about Possible. her than that. Her, I mean, What she's sharing seems like what we would say maybe very easily unattached. Is that like friendships in the workplace are critical and valuable. Um, it feels like maybe he's sort of more so commenting on his own traumatic experiences in the workplace. And I would definitely not label all workplace friendships as trauma bonding. Really? Reject that idea. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> you don't think we bond over the trauma of our experiences with work? So that's different. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Okay. Fair. Okay. Tell me more about that. Um, I mean, I, we would be. Wait, are we, we would, friends? <laughs> I was just going to <laughs> Say we would be friends. I was about to do the same thing because I was going to say we would be friends even if work wasn't hard. And then he, and I was like, wait, would we? <laughs> we would, right? We would. <clears throat> yes, we would. Uh, we wouldn't have an option. Just kidding. I'm not a friend bully. No <laughs> trauma bonding. It's a different form of trauma bonding. <clears throat> you will uh, be my friend. <laughs> uh oh. It seems like you're circling back to trauma bonding. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's familiar. The idea of trauma bonding. As maybe I should be, but um, I don't think we're only friends for the sake of surviving something that is traumatic. Um, That's fair. And so, okay. All right. Sessan, yeah, what are your thoughts? Like okay. I mean, I typically don't prefer people just loosely throw out the word trauma. And um, I don't, I don't know, know if he was. I mean. It could have been real for him. Right. But then he posted it on for the world to see so you know if you were to use say the you know my experience but i think people may hear that and think oh gosh that whatever she said is there's a direct connection there and i just don't see that so i think again he's maybe speaking to his own experiences um and i don't see how one is tied to the other directly and so yeah, I just think I prefer people not just about trauma um, when somebody describes a relationship um, without really using any disclaimers. So is I think there's a lot is... of the word trauma is very loosely used nowadays in my experience. And then I'm always like, let's I think we have to be really careful because when somebody experiences trauma and the impact that it has, like if we're using trauma more casually, even if again, not to say they may not have a traumatic experience but in the way they're just throwing it out there it can feel a little loose interesting well, I think... oh. go ahead say what's i was gonna say i think trauma bonding is referring to typically the relationship between like a victim or a survivor and the person who's perpetuating the abuse oh, too right i don't in the research i've heard it more in terms of like um people who serve in the military together. 
Oh, and having shared experiences, having shared trauma. experiences of trauma. Oh, and I've heard well, of it more in the context of a person who exploited like an unhealthy relationship with the person yeah. they identify as their abuser. I've heard it in the other, like in the military literature and um, like that. Um, so I think it depends on, how, of course, how he's saying it. I think there is a lot of talk recently, especially among like younger generations about how corporate America is mm. so um, uh, exploitative of workers, especially young workers. So I think that's kind of what he was referring to um, is that kind of uh, discussion among uh, people about how um, exploitative uh, the workforce can be. Mm. Well, then it makes and- me wonder too, oh man, why... That little brief little TikTok. Now it's got my brain all going. It makes me wonder too then about whether those relationships prevent people from leaving exploitative sort of toxic workplaces because you, I guess in either interpretation or either understanding what trauma bonding is referring to, either you've developed close relationships to survive trauma with other people that you are working with that's going to prevent you from leaving and getting out of that situation, or um, you've developed sort of an unhealthy although uh, albeit sort of a frame that probably is very necessary for survival, uh, unhealthy relationship with the person who's perpetuating the abuse, um, which would also make it very hard to leave, right? Either interpretation Mm -hmm. means you'd get stuck in an exploitative workplace for, you could be there for a long time based on really unhealthy relationships. Oh boy. Which we see happen a lot. There's a lot of, um, I'm on a lot of like workforce. I see a lot of workforce, Mm. um, uh, social medias and people's experience about mm. how uh, bosses manipulate or um, their experiences uh, therein. And it, there's also this trend of um, uh, bosses and management trying to convince junior workers to stay because we're family. We yeah, should stay exactly. together rather than Ugh. paying them what they're worth. So there is this exploitative mm really in the workforce right now that a lot of people are talking about voicing and trying to Mm. push back on. So for me, and I guess I know those conversations and how they're ongoing, um, what he's talking to speaks to that aspect Mm. of that ongoing narrative that I've heard about in the workforce um, uh, genre of conversations. Um, So another one, get ready, buckle up. Work friends are crucial for your health. She's not talking to us. She's not talking to us. Um, your coworkers are not your friends. You can be nice to them. You can be cordial to them, but they are not your friends. Act accordingly. So based on the conversation we just had, um, what are your thoughts? Good or bad advice? Woods? Um. Well, I don't know if she's sort of referring to the position of power that we're presuming that Kelly Ripa has in her workplace. Maybe. Um, so I'm going to read I, you some I, of the comments to kind of help with the. Honestly, um, it feels like a Michael Scott. We're implying like a Michael Scott situation. Maybe. Where we're suggesting she thinks her workplace is her. So this is a comment. Yep. I already got friends. I'm good. The next person, the friendship ends when the day ends. I don't have contact outside of business hours. Keep oh. them at our arm's length. Your weekends are always fine, nothing too crazy, and your day is good, well, so far. How about yours? Nothing more. 
Yep, church and state, working friends. Oh, interesting. I suppose that's one way to approach things. Um, I... <laughs> That it isn't how I approach things, but I, I do watch for that boundary. If there's a power differential, I'm, I don't want to assume, because that's less healthy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I assume we're friends and I'm going to be contacting you outside of work at all hours, at all times. But I'm, I have a supervisory capacity, like that's an unhealthy relationship um, uh, that I wonder if that's sort of part of it. But interesting. I mean... If that's not a fit for somebody, then certainly being forced into friendship, um, which I know you're not suggesting is happening here, Patricia, that would not be enjoyable. <laughs> it's a good point. I think it is a boundary being set, um, which I always am pro-boundaries being set. Sesson, what are your thoughts? I think friendships takes different forms, right? There's different typology sure. for friendships. So I think the term of friendships was used sort of really generally. And I think um, what I imagine she was trying to capture is just be mindful of, like you said, boundaries and what you say and how you say it. And you might develop some relationships at work that are healthy, that are more, you know, um, friends of acquaintances or active friends that you spend time doing certain activities with, you know, um, they don't have to be lifelong friends or best friends or confidants or um, the kind of friends where you have these really deep, intimate relationships. You can save that for other yeah. people in so your life. So be friendly and respectful to be them. Be friendly. Like... And even you can identify as friends, but there's limits, right? Friends that, like with every friendship, there's limits to it. So you still act accordingly. I think what she's trying to say is like, you know, don't do anything that will ultimately jeopardize you professionally in those friendships, which I think is sound advice. I think being mindful of, that there is a different layer to this relationship that you have to really mm -hmm. be mindful of because there's implications to saying or doing things in that relationship where there wouldn't be another relationship. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's just about knowing the friendship, knowing sort of how to navigate that given the context in which you share. So. Which I think is important, just being mindful of um, all of those. And if that's a boundary you feel most comfortable setting, I think that that's okay. Set that boundary. All right, last one. This is from Stephen Colbert. What is your best parenting advice from an audience member? What is your best parenting advice? My best parenting advice? Yeah. <laughs> They're smarter than you think. They're listening more often than you imagine. And your job eventually, I find is to pay attention to who your child is becoming as opposed to trying to make them into who you think they should be. Mm. And I would say, because there's so many data points there that you don't know about. There's so many data points going there that you don't know about. And the fact that the child isn't conforming to your expectations has nothing to do with whether the child's proper development. It has to do with your expectation of that. That and the best advice I ever got was from Maurice Sendak when I interviewed him. And I said, well, how, how, what do you think is important about raising a child? And he said, just love them unconditionally. And that's what I try to remember. Is that at the very least, just, just love your children. He goes on. Of course he does. Uh, but we'll stop it right there. What are our thoughts? Good or bad advice? Is it Wood's turn? What are your thoughts, Wood's? Uh, I think that's beautiful advice. So well informed by 
um, attachment relationships and what makes for healthy parent-child relationships, that unconditional mm. uh, love and providing safety and acceptance and understanding, and also really sort of reflective of, um, I think also like a developmental process in terms of we often have expectations that may or may not match who our kid is going to be just based on their temperament, but also their developmental stage. I think that's something that at least personally, I feel like I uh, have to sort of learn and relearn over and over and over. Um, that there is no amount of like reading about what a child is supposed to look like at this age or at this stage. And then it like perfectly maps onto your kid. Uh, so taking who is in front of you uh, and understanding who they are um, and helping to sort of shepherd them as best you can when as a parent, your growth isn't static either. So I love that advice. I like that. As a parent, your growth isn't static either. Uh, Sasson, what are you thinking? Good or bad advice? I think anything he says is great, to be honest. So um, it's a little biased, just put it out there. But I do think the idea when he said, um, just sort of pay attention to who they're telling you they are, right? Like, it, I think that's so critical because I think a lot of the time we spend energy as parents trying really hard to get the child to be a version of themselves that we want them to be and are missing all the cues that they're giving us about who they are in the moment, right? Like, and what they need. Um, and so I'm constantly encouraging, you know, parents to be mindful of really meeting the child where they're at when you are deciding how you want to help them and guide them. It's because there's a way they'll react if you don't do that, right? And so I'm constantly like looking to my child to understand what messages he's sending me constantly like rather than to ignore what he's showing and doing and saying because I'm so busy trying to instill my own ideas of everything about who he should be and how he should act so I like that a lot it's challenging when I uh it's so hard uh so when I had our third child the lady her name is Sam she's absolutely lovely she's been like helping us raise our children she takes care of the kiddos for us uh during the day uh anyway she said when you have two children you inherently compare them to each other and when you have that third child it's much easier to let them all be their own person because they all existed, it's just, they're all so different. Um, so I always think about that and trying to make sure that I am not comparing them and especially because they're all different ages, right? That's not fair to do. <laughs> my two-year-old is not my nine-year-old, believe it or not. Um, and watching them be their own person to develop their own identity and personality both independently, but also in a reflection of how the other two are developing their identity too, because they're striving to be a different person as well. But so his words also make me think of what Sam said about that third one really allows you more easily to see them independently than 
the two and I have there's a, not that that's a reason to have three children by any stretch of the imagination that's not what I'm advocating but it was an interesting shift in my mind uh, going from two to three she did not tell me any words of wisdom for uh, one so I'm sorry I cannot impart that to you two lovely ladies um, but she did say it from a two to a three shift Thanks for listening to Attacked Us. Always remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.